you know, biblical truth is something that you don't just know. It's something that you experience. And when you experience God's truth, then it is amazing. It, it is transforming of your life. I was reminded of that recently when uh, we have two children. Our son is 31, a school teacher, and our daughter is uh, 29. And about a year and a half ago, our son Brian uh, got married. Now, our kids are that age, but I remember a time when they were the age of Heath's children. And uh, one Saturday when our kids were little, I think Brian was about seven at that time, we had had a busy week at school, all the you know, kids at school and all that. And on Saturday, as many pastors have, we had two weddings. And I want to tell you when that morning I explained to Brian, now Brian today, I know you got a lot of playing that you wanted to do, but we've got two weddings. I want to tell you that was the last thing he ever wanted to hear. And that was not at all what he had planned for his Saturday that day. So the first wedding was at an, another church and uh, we went uh, together as a family and he made it through that pretty good. We came home and I mean, it was just a short time till it was time to head back up to our church where I was doing a wedding for a family in our church. And I mean, when I told him, Brian, it's time to get ready to go. He was just, he was bent out of shape. I mean, it was the worst thing he could imagine of you know, spending his whole Saturday going to weddings. So I took him with me and Ellen came with Stephanie a little bit later and we were at the church kind of walking around and he was just moaning and groaning about having to spend his Saturday going to weddings. And finally he looked up at me and he said, this seven-year-old boy, he says, Daddy, two weddings on one Saturday are more than a seven-year-old boy can stand. And uh, you know what, uh, he, when he said that, I said, Brian, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, when I've had two weddings on a Saturday, that's a lot. In fact, it, it became a family joke that uh, after that time, uh, whenever I had two weddings on a weekend, I would come up to Ellen and say, honey, two weddings on one weekend are more than a pastor 40 years old can stand. So uh, it became a family joke for us. And uh, but what I, I said to Brian, I said, well, son, you can't go home because uh, mom and Stephanie will be up here. But I tell you what, uh, you've made a good point to me. So you don't have to go to this wedding, but I will let you go to my office and I'll put some, you know, pens and, and paper and you can draw and color. And then when the reception comes, I'll come get you because they'll have punch and cookies and you'll like that, you know. So that satisfied him. And so he was in my office during the wedding and during the wedding, he wrote me a note and left it on my desk. And here's what he wrote. This is a you know, little boy. Uh, he said, Dear Dad, weddings are so disgusting. He said, why do you do them? And then he wrote answer below and wrote all these lines, you know, and says, love, Brian. Well, uh, you know, a little seven-year-old boy. Well, I kept that note and I, and and did, never really answered his question until I performed his wedding and told that story on him and said, son, I've waited to this moment to answer your boyhood question and, and talked about that. Because, you know, he had been through many weddings and he had, he had learned a lot about marriage. He knew about marriage. But when a year and a half ago he became married, then that truth was life transforming to him. And that's the way biblical truth is. It's not just something you know it is something you experience. And when you experience truth about God, 
It is life transforming. It is amazing. Let me give you a biblical example. In the book of Genesis, we read about a man named Abraham, a man of great faith. And in Genesis 12, God called to Abraham and he said, I want you to go to a place that I have uh, promised to you. And he said to him a promise in Genesis 12, verse 2. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in that a verse, God is revealing to him a truth about the, the character that we know about God. And that is that God is one who blesses. To his children, God blesses. He blesses everyone. And what a joy it is to those who recognize it and place their faith in him because the blessing is all the greater. But there was a truth that now Abraham knew about God. God is a God who blesses. And that means that God's going to protect him and God's going to provide for him for his needs. And God's going to keep his promises. And so God was revealing that he is a God who blesses. But immediately after that call of God to, to Abraham to go to this place, when he gets there, immediately God gives him a test. And in that very same chapter, in verse 10, the Bible says, now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. So as soon as he gets this truth about God, that God blesses, God provides, God protects, God keeps his promises, immediately there's a test where he is wondering, now, will God provide? I've come to this place and there's a severe famine. Uh, if you'll read this chapter, you'll find that there was no prayer on Abraham's part. There was no patience to wait to see how God might bless him in the midst of the famine. Uh, there was just immediately he took matters into his own hands and he ran down to Egypt. And if you read the rest of it, he got into a little bit of trouble down there. He was a man of faith, but his faith was growing. And you read the rest of the story of Abraham through the book of Genesis, this journey of faith. You find that through different experiences of his life, he learned the truth, experienced the truth that God is a God who blesses and he provides and he protects and he keeps his promises. And Abraham experienced that truth and his faith grew and it grew so much that he would withhold nothing from God. And so in Genesis chapter two, there's another test that came, a much stronger test than what he had at the beginning this time and you remember that uh, very familiar story of how God said to Abraham I want you to take your son your only son this is the promised son that all these descendants were to come through he said I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him on the altar and so Abraham now much further in that journey of faith experiencing truth about God without hesitation without waiting he immediately was obedient and he took his son and they headed to the place of the altar. And in Genesis 22, as they were on their way to that altar, Isaac, his son, spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And this man that at first would not trust God to provide in the midst of a famine. Now here's what he said to his son. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
And the two of them went on together. And sure enough, you know that he laid his son upon the altar. He was ready to sacrifice him. But God stopped him at that point and says, now I know that you love me. And then the Bible says, Abraham looked around. It's in verse 13. And there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its thorns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it on the burnt offering instead of his son. God had provided just as he had faith, just as he experienced throughout his journey of faith. That God is a God who blesses. God is a God who provides. And so in verse 14, the Bible says, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And until this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you see how in Abraham's life, truth about God was not just something that he knew. It was something he'd experienced. And when he experienced God's truth, it was amazing. It was transforming. Now, now that leads us to the gospel of Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to tell you briefly two stories from the life of Jesus that are experiences that people had with the truth about God. And at the end of these two stories, I want you to look at verse 26. Here's how Luke summarizes the response of the people. Because they had not just learned some truth about God. They experienced. They saw the truth about God. And listen to what Luke says. Verse 26. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. I tell you, when you begin to experience truth about God, it is amazing. For Jesus is incomparable. There's no one like him. There's no one to compare him to. He is totally unique. He has no rival. He is As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he is indescribable. And what a wonderful blessing we have that God has given us this indescribable gift. He is amazing. And when you experience truth about Jesus, it is amazing. It is life transforming. In this passage, we read about two miracles. uh, Two individuals who experienced the truth about who Jesus is. And it is, as Luke said in verse 26, it is amazing. The first one is a man who had leprosy. And the second one is a man who was a paralytic. And his four friends brought him in through the roof to Jesus. Both of these men had a lot in common. They were both in incurable situations. They were both desperate for help. And they both found their need met in Jesus Christ. They experienced it. Now, in Luke's gospel, he is trying to describe who Jesus is. He is not just telling us different stories about Jesus. He is presenting Jesus as the Savior of the world. So the Holy Spirit was guiding him in how he chose these miracles and how he placed them in his gospel account. And so in this passage, he is revealing something very important about Jesus And what he's revealing is this. Jesus is willing and able. What a wonderful image of our God, our Savior, that he is willing and he is able. Let me show you how Luke reveals that. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12, let me read to you about this leper. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. 
And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded you for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here is a man who... Luke says, and Luke was a doctor, remember, that he was covered with leprosy. It's a word that means full of leprosy. It means that he had an advanced case of leprosy. Uh, We know now leprosy as the Hansen's disease. And we know that what it does is it destroys a, a body's ability to sense pain. And you may think that that is a blessing, but it's actually a very difficult thing because your body extremities become numb and you can run into something with your hand or with your foot and it can be cut and you would not even realize it. And so people who have leprosy will injure themselves without knowing about it and then it does not heal properly. And so sometimes they actually have parts of their limbs that will just waste away and drop off. A leper in that day was an outcast. They had to live outside of the camp. So they were isolated from family and friends. Think about that. To have some kind of disease that separates you from those you love and love you the most. That's the way it was for a leper. They were unable to work. They could not earn a living. So most of them in that day had to be beggars. And whatever they got was what they lived on. They were also considered religiously unclean. And so when a Jewish person was preparing themselves for worship, they would be careful not to get near to a leper lest they become ceremonially unclean. And so they were alienated. In fact, when they would come to a crowd, they would have to announce their presence. Unclean, unclean. Think about living like that. The Jewish historian Josephus said that lepers were treated, quote, as if they were dead men. You know, we have a term today that is about those who are on death row called dead men walking. That's what Josephus was saying here about lepers. It's like they're already dead, but they're still walking around. Now, in the Bible, leprosy is a picture of what sin does to us spiritually. That sin is like leprosy. It corrupts us from head to toe, just like leprosy will spread throughout the body. It alienates us from those we love and most of all from the Lord that we love. It destroys us. We cannot cure ourselves. It is a hopeless situation, the problem of sin. That's why the Bible says it is like dead man walking. We are dead in our sins. So leprosy is a spiritual picture of sin. So Luke is telling us something much more than just the healing of a leper. He is telling us about Jesus that he can cleanse us of the deadly disease of sin. He can forgive us. He can wash us clean, white as snow. That he is the only source of true salvation. 
Notice how this man came to Jesus. For it is a picture of how we ought to come to Jesus. He came to Jesus admitting his need. He, he said to him, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You know what he was admitting? That he was not clean. He, he was admitting that he had a need. That's how anyone must come to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually proud do not come to Jesus. But those who see their need and admit it, those are the ones who come to him. And this man acknowledged that his need was total. So he came admitting his need. But also notice that he came in worshipful submission to Jesus. He came and he knelt down before him as one would fall before the presence of God. He came to Jesus realizing that Jesus was his only hope. He is, in my mind, a picture of what real worship is. Real worship is when we come to the Lord in the same way. We, we come to him admitting our need. That we are here not because we're such great people that we go to church regularly. We are here because we recognize our need. We need God's grace. We need his presence in our lives. We need to praise him. We are coming because we need to be here. And we are also coming in full realization that Jesus is our only hope. There's no other hope but him. And so when we come into his presence, acknowledging our need with the deep understanding that, that we are totally dependent upon him, he is our only hope. That's when real worship takes place. Real worship is submission to the Lord. And then we see his faith. Uh, it's interesting. He, he makes this question, Lord, if you're willing. He had no doubts that Jesus was able. He knew that Jesus could heal him. His only question was, are you willing to heal me? He had perhaps heard stories of how Jesus had healed others. He had perhaps heard some of his teaching. He had become a believer that this man, Jesus, is able to save me. He is able to heal me. But he wondered, is he willing? Now, you know, sometimes sin lies to us in two opposite ways. Sometimes we think we minimize sin in our life. We think, you know, nothing's really wrong with me compared to others. I'm okay. And so we minimize the the terribleness of the sin of our lives. The, the other way is sin maximizes itself so much to say you could never be saved. There's nobody so low that God couldn't even save you. Uh, I have a pastor friend that's now retired. It was Aaron Garland where I was for so many years. And I uh, heard him preach one time. He preached a message. And when I heard the title, I thought, now I wonder where he's going to go with that. He said, there is nothing lower than the love of Christ. That was his title. And my first reaction was, boy, there's nothing more precious. There's nothing more lofty than the love of Christ. But as he developed the sermon, here's what here was his point. There's no person that is so sinful, that is so low, that the love of Christ cannot reach down to where they are and pick them up. And boy, by the end of that sermon, I was saying amen to that. There's nothing lower than the love of Christ. Well, sometimes sin lies to us 
to make us think that my life is so messed up, even Jesus can't help me. But this man is a picture that Jesus is able to reach down to all of us at the point of our need. And so Jesus reached out. This man said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And I want to tell you, probably it had been maybe 20, 30 years since this man had ever been touched by another person. They all avoided. He was hands off. And when the Bible says, when Luke says that Jesus reached out and touched him, this isn't just a word that means that he reached out and touched him. It is a word that means he took hold of him. Now you think about this powerful image about who our God is. That here is a man that is alienated from everybody else and they avoid him. He is an untouchable one. And this man comes up and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus doesn't just touch him. He doesn't just speak the word that he be healed. He reaches out and takes hold of him. And he says, I am willing. That's the Lord that we have. That's the truth about God. He is willing to reach out and touch us. What a powerful image that is of our Christ. There's another image. We go right from that miracle to hear about a paralytic, also in a desperate situation. The house is full, as you know, and there's not room for everyone to come in. And so his friends get very creative because they know that Jesus is the one they need to get their friend to. And so they go up on the roof and and they tear open the roof. It was in those days, a roof would have timbers going across every two or three feet. And then they had uh, branches that would come across this way. And then they would put dirt on top of that. So it really was the kind of roof that you could dig in and dig through. And so while Jesus was teaching, they dug through and they let their friend down. And the Bible says, as you could read in this passage, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said that uh, your sins, he looked at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And Luke tells us that there in that house were many believers, but there were some who were not believers. He talks about the presence of those Pharisees who were not there because they wanted to learn from Jesus. They were wanting to accuse Jesus. And Luke tells us, but also there was present the power of God to heal. Isn't that interesting that so many times, even in the midst of God's power at work in and through his people, there's also the presence of some who are unbelievers. And so there in that house, Jesus knew that there were some who believed and there were some who didn't. So he set up a test because when he said, your sins are forgiven, they were thinking in their hearts, Only God can forgive sins. How can he say that? You know, to them it was blasphemy. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he set up a test to show that he is able to forgive sins. He said to them, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now they could see with their own eyes if this paralytic was able to get up and walk. They could not see with their own eyes if he was forgiven in God's sight. And so Jesus was setting up a test to say, if I have the ability, if I have the power to say to him, get up and walk, then I also have the ability to say your sins are forgiven and his sins are forgiven. And so that was the very test that he set up. And as you know, he said to the man, he said, get up, take up your mat and go home. And immediately, Luke says, he stood up in front of all of them, 
took on what he'd been lying on and went home praising God. Now the point that Jesus was making in an unmistakable way to everyone there is that he is able. He is able to say to a paralytic, get up and walk. He is able to say to him and to any of us who believe your sins are forgiven, that he is God who became man still being God. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And he is willing and he is able. And Luke tells these stories of how those people that day experienced that truth. They saw it with their own eyes. And we come back to verse 26. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. They hadn't just learned something about God. They had experienced the truth of who he is. Now, I want to share with you in closing one of our favorite verses. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3. It's a part of the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And it talks about the ability of our God. Paul closes his prayer by this wonderful verse. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, is at work with us. That's our favorite verse. Because there's been several times in our life that we've seen God do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That's the kind of God we have. I remember a time when my faith was very weak and my prayers were very timid. But our God was very able to do immeasurably more than I could ask or imagine at that time. Haven't you experienced that? Our God is able and our God is willing. 